it's the thing that I most strongly associate with that particular area of yeah. Texas and always the thing that I'm looking for. You go to a Bucky's, you get a Kalachi, yep. the, the, you know, you've been there anyways. Yeah. Uh, so Jada, we didn't even start the show properly. Jada yeah. Dormeyer, supply account manager here at Nori, co-hosting with me today. Hi, Jada. Hi, Ross. Thanks for having me again. I'm excited to have a supply partner on with us today. So uh, we're talking with Dr. Julie Howe, the project director of the Texas Climate Smart Initiative. Hi, Julie. How are you doing? Hi. Thank you all for inviting me. Yeah. I'm doing great. Good. Can you give us a little background about how, about you, how you got here? Did you grow up in ag and how you came to get to this point in life? Well, hopefully you don't. It won't be too long. It's, it's a long story. So uh, I, I grew up not too far. Um, so I'm currently in College Station, Texas. I grew up in Temple, uh, which is about an hour and a half from here. Uh, the Kalachi capital, in my opinion, although there's a couple other people that claim that. Um, and the it, I I really didn't grow up ag, but my grandparents, um, one of my grandparents said they had cows and um, land, ag land. And, you know, I kind of grew up always really interested in environmental problems. And I guess when I went to Texas A&M to do my bachelor's degree, I took a soil science class. Oh, I started in engineering and then I took a soil science class and I was like, oh my gosh, soil is like the answer to all environmental problems because it touches on air, it touches on water, it touches on, you know, contaminants and things in the ground. And so um, that's where I kind of started. And then I did my graduate degrees in soil chemistry to try to understand the chemical processes going in the soil. And so I really didn't do like I did more environmental more so than I did agriculture. So then uh, I did my I actually did a postdoc in human nutrition, which is really different and worked on vitamin A for a while because it just at some point you get through your PhD and you're like, what am I doing with my life? And, you know, you kind of break out and then. And then I got my first faculty position at Auburn University and I worked there for 10 years. And that's where I really got into ag and because um, they have a lot more ag programs. And so I did some environmental stuff, but I was really trying to pick, the, trying to do projects that would make farmers profitable, but also environmentally sustainable. And that's kind of where I got into that ag slash environmental sustainability thing. And so um since my family's from Texas and there, a job opened and my parents were getting older, I thought maybe it's a good time to come back to Texas and take care of them. And so that's kind of where I got back to Texas A&M and um, then had the opportunity to um, do a lot of grants and research that are designing to get uh, sustainability and profitability back into the farm. So trying to figure out ways to do things that's both economically beneficial for the farmer as well as sustainable for their operation long term. Wow, Ward Am Eagle. I spent time down there too. Actually. Oh yeah, yeah. Ward Am Eagle. It's a, it's a, that's a great area too. I, I loved, uh, I love my time at Auburn. That was, they're great tailgaters for sure. If you like football, oh, man. Oh my god, the tailgating there is. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, no, although, I, I thought yeah. we did it here. We don't, we don't tailgate compared to what they do. Yeah, I've heard it described in uh, explicitly religious terms, and I, I frankly can vouch for that. It is how it feels <laughs> there. That's cool. I think people don't really associate, I think, farming, especially farming at land-grant universities, big ag programs as being ones that are focused on sustainability. Is that is that knowledge just wrong? Are people just assuming that that is not something that uh, large ag programs care about? I think it is kind of wrong. I, I would say about half of the people that I work with 
have at least one or two projects that have to do with improving uh, some sort of sustainability thing. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't sound environmental, like maybe it's about drought tolerance, improving drought tolerance with plants, or maybe it's looking at fertilizer efficiency. But again, if you're reducing fertilizer inputs, you're improving the farmer's pocketbook, but you're also improving the environment. So there's there's both sides of that. I think a lot of people think that big ag just want to dump as many chemicals and resources into farming as much as possible to get things to happen. But the reality is that's what hurts your pocketbook, right? And so trying to figure out ways to to reduce the amount of pesticides and reduce the amount of chemicals and and things is actually an environmental environmentally positive practice. And I think a lot of our researchers work on it, but maybe people don't worry and don't realize that. Do you think that's because like ag is sometimes, especially in maybe more conservative states too, you don't necessarily see farmers um, talking as much about sustainability. Do you guys kind of run into that too and having to maybe um, like convince farmers that these are the ways to go or how does that work yeah, for you guys? I, I definitely think that is, there's a lot of different, types of and and I hate to use word maybe farmers is the wrong word or producers because it you know they sometimes produce multiple things. Mm-hmm. Um I I think that there's different groups of people. I think there are people that I mean just like in anything, there are people that, man, I'm gonna do it just like my granddad did it and we're just gonna there's a lot of traditional practices out there. But there's also a lot of people out there is like, hey, you know, um I see my land kind of blowing away with the wind or you know, um, it's eroding and and I, this doesn't look sustainable to me. And and what can I do to make it better? Um, I think there are some people that, you know, really listen. And then some people who that, you know, you've got to prove it to them and show them. And that's one reason I really kind of like this Climate Smart Initiative project that that I'm on, because I think the biggest problem is, is I can tell you all day. day but until you try something and see for yourself whether it benefits your operation or not, and at, at a way where you don't have to, um, it, maybe it doesn't cost you very much or it's very low risk for you financially, this is how you're going to figure out whether it fits in your operation or not and makes you more sustainable or not. Because some of the practices, maybe they're not initially sustainable in year one or two. Like the, let, me, let me say that again. Sometimes the practices may not be financially beneficial to you in the first couple of years but maybe later on they are but farmers are usually i mean it's a it's to me they're the biggest gamblers i know right so Mm -hmm. you you're you're putting all your eggs in one basket to get this crop to get in and you're assuming the weather's going to be good and the water and the rain and the you know all of these things are gonna that you're not going to get a herd of grackles come and eat your sorghum crop which happened to me once um you know, these these strange things are not going to happen because, you know, crickets, armyworms, disease, they can just wipe you out. And so if your whole yearly income is tied to that one thing, you're going to you don't want to gamble. And I get that. So um, sometimes you want to make sure that you're going to make that profit. And so we need to figure out ways to figure out how you can show that you can make that profit or get through that couple of years where it may not make as much money so that in the five years down the road, 10 years down the road, it will make you that money. I've never heard it 
put that way so explicitly with the gambling analogy, but yeah. it, it is a parlay, essentially. You need to win both the bet that regen is going to work for your farm and also the bet that the crop itself that you planted won't be destroyed, eaten, uh, yeah. rained out. So and everyone, I don't know, I'm not like a sports better, but I know people who are, but you know, winning parlays is you're essentially multiplying the risk of those two things together, right? So you just yeah. increase the risk a whole lot. I can see why exactly. people are maybe hesitant. Right, exactly. And so I, I, I really think that I don't really blame people for being hesitant and when their whole livelihood is dependent on something they're not familiar with, it's scary to go into it. I don't blame them. I mean, you know, people are, when they start, when you start talking about your income and what you're trying to do, um, you get a lot more conservative real quick. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so especially when you've got kids to go to college and, and food to put on the table and clothing and, you know, cars to pay for and things like that. Farmers are often carrying huge amounts of debt. Are many farmers just one year away from being bust? Well, I, I don't know if I can answer that question, but I think there are farmers that are in that, that situation. Um, that's one reason we have farmer insurance. And I think that's one thing that we're trying to work on with our econ team is to see, you know, is there some sort of insurance policy or something that if you add these practices, how would this, you know, is there insurance for some of these things? Because I think that we've not changed our farming. We we keep putting money into saying that these are the practices you should do, but we're not really changing our how we do farming. And uh, a lot of farmers are on contracts or on, um, uh, you know, or have crop insurance for certain things. And some of these practices could influence those those rates and how they do those things. I'm not an economist, so you got to talk to our econ team. Um, about these things, but they're they're way they're very much co more complicated than what you'd ever think from a, a layman's perspective. <laughs> I actually am a former crop insurance agent, so I can speak to the fact that there are farmers that are one year away from like going completely bust. And I've paid out like million dollar crop insurance claims for, for instance, I had a, a client that um, he had an alfalfa seed several alfalfa seed fields but one of them while he was swathing it was just blowing the wind started blowing and blew all of the windrows out and so he's like taking a video and sending it to me and he's like what am i supposed to do so uh for that circle he got you know several hundred thousand dollars but most of the farmers that i talked to in those situations they say like if i don't get this payment i can't pay my operating line back i can't farm again next year i'll have to potentially like sell the farm so that's definitely something that's on the forefront of farmers' minds, I think, too. So I think these are really important things to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I, Larry, you can make gamble if, you're, if your operation could just go belly up next year. No, you're not going to gamble. And that's why, that's why programs have to be, you know, low risk to get into them because nobody wants to try something. If, if it's worked for them for 25 years, why should I try something new if I'm barely making ends meet? you know, as it mm -hmm. is. Maybe you could give us a nice overview. Maybe, you know, maybe you don't, but you've been hearing about the Climate Smart Commodities Program over at uh -huh. the USDA. I imagine yeah. there's a, a whole bunch of programs that are intended to help farmers change practices. Do you think you mm -hmm. could give us an, an overview and then zoom into which part of this you're working on specifically? Yep. Perfect. Yeah. Um. So the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities is a great program that funded if I can remember, it's like $3.1 billion of projects. And they have, all of them have three main objectives. One is to 
uh, directly pay farmers to, in, in, as an incentive to adopt climate smart practices. And that could be something if you're a row crop farmer, maybe that's no-till or cover cropping or something like that. If you're, um, maybe if you manage pastures and, and cattle, maybe you're, you're controlling grazing management or nutrient management or irrigation, if you're maybe horticulture, um, and maybe your forestry and it's how you're managing your forest. So those are kind of those practices that you would do. Um, then the second objective is to quantify those benefits. C is, you know, are you, you know, over the course of the project, did we add carbon to the soil or did we reduce greenhouse gas emissions? And while most farmers are going to be like, okay, well, why do I care about climate smart? Well, because adding that carbon to the soil it is actually making your farm probably more sustainable and reducing greenhouse gas emissions probably means your fertilizers being a little bit more efficiently used. So those are things that, while it sounds like it's benefit just for the climate, it's also benefit for your farm or your operation. And then the last objective is to develop markets and create pathways to take those products that were created or, or, or generated with climate smart practices and give them added value our markets to be able to have the market actually pay back some of those uh, costs of climate smart production. So in the long run, we I really hope that some of the practices will make the farmer more productive as it is without even needing that money to come back. But if we can actually have money come back to the system through um, you know, some sort of branding or, or tr supply chain tracing so that maybe you get climate smart jeans or climate smart t-shirts or something like that, then that goes back and pays, um, pays back to the farmer. The other thing we're looking at is carbon credits as well. That would be another thing if you can add the carbon to the soil and we can keep it there. Um, carbon credits are another way that, um, but there's a lot of, at least in Texas, there's a lot of concerned whether that's actually going to work. And there's parts of Texas where we think that production can maybe maintain carbon levels, but maybe it, it, as opposed to causing them to decrease over time. And so that's not the same thing as adding carbon to the soil. So I think there's different regions are going to have different um, abilities to generate carbon uh, in the soil. Well, if I made sense on that. So I know some some regions may be better suited to storing carbon in the soil than others just because of their climate and their region and their soils. Hmm. Yeah, I was trying to... And that's, I guess, that gets down to the Texas Climate Smart Initiative. We're trying to focus on Texas. And we we try to say that no farmer or no, per, no person, no commodity producer in Texas is the same. There may be somebody that has trees and cows there may be somebody that, in fact, I just talked to somebody the other day. They have trees, cows, and row crop operations. So they had all three. And if somebody else, maybe they just run a cattle operation. Maybe somebody else just runs a row crop. Maybe somebody has vegetables and row crops. So we don't think all the farmers are the same. So what we're trying to do is create a climate smart plan, figure out what the best thing to do on this property, and then go through all of those practices so other, some of the other climate smart commodity programs are focusing on just on cotton or just on sorghum or just on rice, or, I mean, that's just to name a few, uh, just on beef cattle production. I mean, there's some that are really specific on, you know, specialty crops, but um, we are focusing specifically just on anything in Texas because we want to look across the state and figure out what is going to sequester them, or I, I use the word sequester, but store is a better word. What, um. What's going to store the most carbon so that we can identify where to put those carbon credits? You know, 
or where to put those efforts toward getting carbon credits. Because I think that would be uh, a good thing or where we can make this is the, the crops more sustainable. I'm sorry, I talked too much. Um, but that's what our goals are on on um, on this program is we want to answer some questions. What what we would like to be able to provide better recommendations. So if you're a farmer in Lubbock uh, in in that area in the north pan in the southern plains in the panhandle of Texas, you know we want to tell you we want to give you the best you know advice on on what is that going to be is it, is it going to be doing no-till cover cropping of your cotton or is it going to be you know um something else or are you going to is it is it worthwhile to do carbon credits should you you know those types of things or maybe we compare that region to another region and see see which where our, our best efforts are yeah sorry Jean. oh that's okay uh julie how are you guys doing that are you saying like these are the programs that you qualify for and try them out or how how do you uh, let them know which ones you think they're best for that's a great question we have an application that uh, we fill out we kind of tease a few of those things out um and so you know what kind of operation do you have what what kind of practices are you interested in and then we're going to send uh what we call a climate smart planner out to kind of talk to them about what the practices are really sort of see you know what are the best options for that and develop a four-year plan and talk about what we're going to do in the next four years. And if the farmer, if the if the participant is is agreeable, we'll sign a, a an agreement, and then they'll implement that plan over the next four years. And we okay. pretty much looked at almost almost any of the not all of them, but most of the climate the NRCS practices recommended practices are part of our plan. Okay, so once the farmer. Over the four years, they get into, let's say they're getting into um, carbon credits with Nori. Um, would they, who is handling that? Are Is the farmer working with Nori? Or are you guys taking that information in for the farmer? How is that part working? Right. So um, what we have set up with Nori specifically is that Laura, Nori is going to work with, uh, we're going to pick, I think it's one or one participant from each region, if I can remember correctly. And Nori is going to do it like a case study. And if the farmer's interested, they could participate wholeheartedly. It's completely, we, we're not going to mandate that the partic participant be part of Nori's program. That's totally mm -hmm. another level of volunteer, but we will pay them to do all the stuff that they would go through if they were going through the carbon crediting programs and give them a chance to sort of evaluate it over the course of the project. And see if, you know, hey, I I did everything I was supposed to do. What is that experience like? And then mm -hmm. did I make a benefit or not? And we're hoping that if we do five of those, and, and I, I believe B Carbon is going to do five too. So that's two different carbon crediting programs that are going to do, that's 10 different people with kind of case study experiences. And then they can talk about what their experiences were. And then, you know, we can see is that, you know, we can look at those different regions. We can look at different commodities. We can try to get an idea if this is what Texas farmers need to do or not. Nice. So when do you expect farmers to start implementing? When does the application period end? Right. So the application is open right now. Um, mm -hmm. We'd love for anyone who wants to apply to apply if they have questions. Uh, I have two people that will answer it if it needs to be in Spanish. 
Dutch. I can find somebody to talk to somebody in Spanish. Um, the, but the online's on our website. Uh, and we're going to start reviewing applications sometime in February, maybe it may be March by the time we actually get it going. But, um, but sometime at end of February, beginning of March, we're going to review applications and start looking at where we're at. And then we're going to um, start adding recruitment in areas where we think we're seeing low enrollment or commodities we see low enrollment. And we're going to keep pushing uh, pushing that application uh, until we, we'd like to enroll for the first year. So as soon as we that select the far the the operations that we're going to be doing. Then we would set up an appointment with the planner, let them plan out the thing, and and you know get all the paperwork done. And then they would we would probably do a first sampling because we want to get kind of a baseline of where they are before we implement anything. And then they can start um, implementing the practices. And then we have so many different commodities and so many different types of climate smart practices. It may depend, like if you're a a row crop farmer, and you might be implementing winter cover crops. I mean, you may not really do the climate smart practice until you know October, right? Um, right. But if or if you're a, a wheat farmer, maybe you you're doing the cover cropping in the summer. So it may vary a little bit by uh, operation on what when they would start exactly. Hmm. Do you pay for? Let's say I'm a farmer. I'm going to add cover crops uh-huh. uh, this spring. Do you pay for the seed with the Climate Smart Initiative program so up front? That's a, or? that's a great question. We provide um, we provide money for the practice, but the farmer would be paying for what they're doing. So okay. we're hoping that we're paying more than what it would cost them to do themselves. I think for I think cover there's a few of them that I, I'm pretty sure we're over. There's a few practices um, that we may not quite be covering all of it, but. For some of them, like for example, on for rice production, one of the practices is alternate wetting and drying, and that's really um, some farmers see that as really risky. And so, whether we're covering all of the cost of that or not, I, I think we're not sure. But for things like cover cropping and um, and uh, no-till and things like that, for the most part, we're covering it, unless you know, obviously, they need fancy equipment or something like that mm-hmm. that's not available. That might be the only place. That would be difficult. We we did buy some equipment though for the project, um, so there are certain areas that will have access to some some no till planters and um, no till equipment and things like that. So, what does your ideal farmer look like, or are there several profiles that might be useful to you? Gosh, I don't know if we have an ideal farmer. I think that goes into no no farmers the same. No participant in the project is is the same. So we really are looking for actually variety. I don't I don't actually want everybody to be the same because I want to see the small operation and the large operation to see how that like do the practices implement the same way? Do you see the same translation um that way? I mean, so I think that's maybe different. We're a little different than maybe other commodity groups that got these are industry groups that got this grant because we want to answer questions right we want to we want to figure we're really trying to figure out like how can this work in texas how can we make it improve our uh, commodity groups how we how we can make it better so i have embedded in the project um 
Uh, so I think there's, at least in our group, there's 10 graduate students that are going to tackle these different questions. Is it a regional thing? Is it a commodity thing? Is it a practice specific thing? Is it small farmers, large farmers? Is it, you know, so all of those questions we're hoping to tackle um, through the project. And is there a better way to measure it? Is there a better way to um, set this up? Is there a better way to do this? Because right now, especially with like the carbon credits, Y'all, I think, Nori, y'all have a, a different way to do it, but some of the carbon crediting programs require very intensive sampling. So, you know, mm -hmm. those types of things. Um, is, do you need all that sampling? Maybe the way you're doing it is perfect. You know, like these are some of the questions that we're we're trying to answer because there's the markets right there. It's all over the place, right? At least that's not here on, on carbon credits. I uh, Every time I talk about carbon credits, I feel like I'm more lost than I was the like it, what people talk about, it, I feel like I get more confused and more lost every time I, I learn more about it. So, well, speaking of being lost in things, I was going to ask a science question. Sure. It's very much the same for me. Uh, how, do you conduct, <laughs> how do you conduct science when there's so many variables, even across regions, fields, even within Texas? How could you say that these general practices are making a difference in the same kind of way in different places? What do you, what do, you do with that? Well, so that's that's where that's what science has been really limited on because we really need numbers, right? In order to conduct science, we need replication. And so that's why our application process, you know, people keep asking me, do you have target number of farmers or commodities or regions? And I'm like, well, no, what we're going to do is we're going to look at where people are located and what their practices are. And we want to make sure that we select uh, operations that have that allow us to do that replication that we need. So we're going to try to make sure that, you know, in each region we have multiples of the same sort of thing. So we get, you know, a couple of data sets Then maybe we have go to another region, make sure we have something like for, I'm going to use cotton because it's an easy commodity. It's all over the state. So we can have, you know, maybe three operations that do no chill and cover cropping in the plains, three that do it in central Texas, three that do it along, you know, the coast and maybe one down in the valley or something like that. And then we can. By doing that, we have multiple operations kind of doing the same practices, and then we can pull that data together and evaluate it. And so that's what's limit a lot of our research that we've been doing all these years is I, I there's not enough money to make any grant allow to allow me to do more than a couple of locations. And so it's really hard to do science when you're talking about two or three locations. And how I can talk about, you know, hundreds of locations. So maybe that gives us better data. Did that sort of explain what I'm, what I'm hoping we can do? It sounds like such a, such a difficult thing to do. And I'm sure where you present your research, imagine someone always asks this replicability question because it's, yeah. it's pretty obvious, right? One of the central tenets of the scientific method. And, and yet, um, it, it seems really challenging to offer an answer. I mean, this, the Savory Institute gets slammed for this all the time where they're saying, yep. like, it doesn't work the same way in every place. How could we say it's scientifically valid? And they say, well, we're holistic and you're only looking at one thing. And, and this is a, a failure of vision, not a failure of the method. And I don't know, do you, do you agree with a retort kind of like that? Yeah, I mean, there's always there's always problems, but then there's no perfect way to do it, right? And I mean, to be honest, you could, if you got really into the weeds, you could be like, well, every history of every site is going to affect every outcome of every field trial. You know, what if somebody, I mean, I, 
my, my favorite example is somebody, I was working with peanut farmers in uh, Alabama once, and they were talking about how, you know, they went out and they put a new field in production and inoculate, they did everything they're supposed to be. And they looked at their field and they had these circles in there and they couldn't figure out why the peanuts were growing in circles. And they did some soil tests and turns out it used to be an old pecan orchard. Pecans all need a lot of zinc and that peanuts are actually toxic. To a lot of, they don't tolerate a lot of zinc. And so you can see where the countries are. And like the, the pecan farm was gone 25, 50 years ago. I and mean, it was not even any time relevant. So you, you kind of forget what happened 25 years ago, but sometimes the soul doesn't forget. So I can, I can appreciate that, that thing, but the ideas, and that's why we have to do it over and over and over again. I think that's why they call it research because you search and you research it over and over again. Right. Um, so research, you just have to keep doing it over and over again. And the idea is if you get a lot of sites that do the same thing, you can make the conclusion that there is a tendency for this practice to work. And so that's what we're hoping for is repeatability in multiple environments so that we can isolate that this is what's going to happen. But yes, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's this problem all, all across the board. There's not, you're not always going to see the same thing. There are always reasons why some things don't work some years and sometimes they work others and there are a lot of variables. And that's one of the reasons that agriculture research is probably one of the most difficult types of research you can do. It seems yeah. to me like a discipline that I'm sure people who don't work in the field think it's been done for a long time. How could there possibly be new ground to turn over, uh, one might say. Um, but no, this is actually one of the hardest. It's one of the oldest, surely, but hardest as well. I don't know. Yeah, but you think about it. Every year you do it, you're probably using different varieties. You're using, you have different yield goals. You maybe have different fertilizer or different mechanisms, different management practices, different equipment. You know, even just the harvesting equipment can make a big difference in your yields and things like that, if that's what you're going for. So I've, like I said, I didn't really start out in, in ag and I was just sort of blown away by how difficult it is and why it's really important to really have the same. So one of the things we're doing in our project is making sure the same lab is analyzing all the data because even small differences in how labs handle samples could make a difference in uh, the results. And so we're trying to keep everything as consistent. We're running very standard procedures on how things are done so that we can make sure that the data is comparable as best as possible. But it, it is it is a constant challenge. I mean, even like greenhouse gases, even the time of day makes a difference. You you know, let's say it's 10 o'clock and you go outside in the 10 o'clock in the morning. But by noon, especially in the summer around here, I mean, that might be a 20 degree difference. Or if a front comes through, you know, maybe it's um, it, maybe the temperature changes, maybe it even drops 20 degrees. You try to make a sample and gases are completely dependent upon um, temperature. So and wind and all these other factors. So we just have to keep doing it and repeating it and making sure that their data is good. I'm probably adding distrust to, to what we do, but I, sh I, I don't mean to do that. I'm really saying that we have to work really hard to, to do a lot of data in order to get clear answers. And that's what we're trying to do. People that I trust the most on anything are the ones who can say, here are the limits to my ideas. Here are where they don't work so well. Here are some of the blind spots that my 
methodology has. I think if you can admit that and hold things a little bit more light, I think that should encourage trust. Although to some people though, that reads as weakness. I don't know. I feel like I've probably inspired trust and some people are like, who is this wishy-washy guy? What does yeah. he actually believe? Weekly. I know they always say that the answer from every scientist is it depends. And that's because it's true. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> I'm guilty of it as well. But no, I mean, it's, it's true, but I, I'm not a used car salesman. I'm not going to tell you that, um, you know, it's going to run perfect and this is going to be great and it's going to work in every situation and whatever. I, I, I don't think that's really true. I have only found one place, though, in the world where I felt like adding carbon to the soil was not a good thing. And um, that was uh, in, I was in Mexico and we were up in the mountains and the time of year that they plant, it gets really wet and adding carbon to the soil added so much more moisture that they would get seed rotting in the field before it germinated. And that's the only place I ever have seen people complain about carbon, added carbon to the soil. Every other place they want the carbon because it helps drainage and it helps water, the soil hold water. It adds nutrients. It, better nutrient recycling. There's like so many and ancillary benefits to adding in carbon to the soil that very few locations uh, in the world are going to have problems with it. But th that was the only place they didn't have very good drainage and that soil just held onto the water really tightly and they just had trouble with it. But that's the only place I had ever in my career have ever seen that be problematic. But it was a pretty place. <laughs> How much rain did they get there? They get, they get a lot in the summer. It's way up in the, I can't remember because uh, they probably did it in metric and I don't want to get the numbers wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, they were up in the mountains. Um, they, they do a lot of wheat um, up there, wheat and corn, but mostly wheat. And the wheat would just couldn't handle the, the, the extra moisture in the winter. So, hmm. yeah. And the corn too, I think, because corn doesn't really like to be too wet. But it was interesting. You learned that. That's the other part that I think is really important as going to other places and learning what other people do and seeing how it adapts back to where you are. Um, I think that's really uh, something that, and I, I don't, I'm not, a lot of people just don't travel very much. And um, I know that there are places where, you can go in the U.S. and they think it's hilarious that you, what do you mean they don't do cover crops? What do they, you know, and then you other go to other places and it's like, oh, I'm not putting that in there. That's going to hurt my, hurt my yield. And it's, it's almost 180 degree different. And yet they may be even growing the same thing. So it's really interesting to me. Um, it would be nice if there was more mixing of, of people around the country to talk, to have discussions about what works and doesn't work. And why it works and doesn't work. I mean, it probably does Heat. truly depend there, right? Like I've heard people say in drier regions, cover cropping competes for water with the main crop. And mm -hmm. that that is a reason why they can't or won't do it. I've heard that. And yet I've done three studies and not one study showed that. It always had more water under the after the cover crop. Well, Every single one of them. You messed up my point, but I'm glad to hear <laughs> it. I've heard that. I've heard that so many times. Oh, me too. No, I I think it's something else. I think it I think it has to do with the the nutrient cycling. We did see the cash crop struggle actually caught up with the other one that was not after a, but it wasn't due to water. I I think they see it 
And I think that effect is visually there, but I don't know if it's there in actual changes in yield. And I don't think it's due to water. I think they attribute it to water. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's a fear. But I'm trying to dispel that myth because I hear it all the time. And you I are think abs- you're absolutely right. <laughs> that happens in Eastern Washington. But I think this is also one of those times that maybe the first couple of years, you don't see the benefit and you may see it a little bit later. Yes. And that's important to remember too. But, yeah. um, and I yeah. also think my dad was an alfalfa farmer and it's interesting to see, uh, you know, like alfalfa farmers are always praying that it doesn't rain and everyone else wants it to rain because, so everybody is wanting a different thing too. So uh, water affects everything differently and um, farming is just a really interesting industry in general. It it really is. I mean, I'm sitting here, it's raining here and we really, it, we're like 14 inches deficit in water. And I'm actually upset because I have a grazing study and we can't get the cows to graze because it's too wet. And I'm really don't like, we're trying to get them out on the cover crops to get them grazed. Cause I want, I think there's some beneficial to graze cover crops that you don't necessarily see. And that also provides some income. Uh, as far as, you know, food for the cows. Um, so, but I, I can't, we've, we've tried every time when we get ready to graze, it rains again. So I'm sitting here going, would you stop raining? <laughs> oh, yeah, just push them out. Um, Julie, uh, what would you say to farmers still on the fence about joining uh, climate programs or carbon programs in general? I would say that keep in mind that this that these pra- these practices are despite whether you care about the climate or not these practices have very high potential to improve your operation reduce water needs keep you you know longer between drought periods um hold nutrients reduce fertilizer inputs like all of these types of things can benefit your operation that don't have anything to do whether you care about climate change or not. That's not really why I think farmers should join this. I think it gives you an extremely low stakes opportunity to try something that you might not think about trying because you can't afford to gamble the farm on it, right? So here's your opportunity where we're going to pay you and hopefully it'll pay you that difference and what that is. And if you only wanted to try it on a small small amount of land. Okay. That's fine too. We don't have to do your whole operation, but you can do a small up side of your operation. So why don't you try it and see what you think, get your feet wet in it. And if you hate it and you think it doesn't have any role in your operation, then we want to, we want to learn that at the end of the project. And then, um, but for right now, let's, let's try to give it an honest effort and see if this could make a difference. This could maybe change your mind about it or change how we do things. And if someone wanted to get involved, how should they do so? Julie? Um, we have, uh, on our project, we have the Texas Climate Smart Initiative. I think the website is uh, climatesmart at tamu.edu. And uh, um, then there's a button right there that takes you to the um, link to the application if you're interested in doing that. There's some other projects as well. Um, I don't have their links memorized or anything, but I know the U.S. Cotton Protocol has one. The Sorghum Producers Protocol uh, has one. 
um, the U.S. rice producers, there's the beef kettle, there's, there's, I mean, you can go to the partnerships for climate smart commodities and you can go by state or, um, commodity. And I think it sorts, um, all of those out so you can get ideas of other programs. And I think they link to all of their websites. So if you happen to be listening and you're not from Texas or something else, but, um, I think it's certainly worth looking into. And I, I, I always try to tell farmers carbon credits are gravy, right? You have your operation. This is your gravy, right? You you don't have to have gravy on your turkey dinner, but man, sometimes it tastes a lot better if you add <laughs> gravy or the icing on your cake or whatever. So, um, you know, if you think that you're you, you can contribute to carbon sequestration, then maybe it's not a hundred dollars an acre, but hey, it still could be something that could help you out and make your operation um, more sustainable economically. Lachis, turkey dinner. Come on, Julie. <laughs> I know we were into food, so I thought I'd go with that full circle. They, they, my my students laugh at me because I'm always coming up with with analogies because I I find that sometimes people relate better to analogies. So I have I teach and uh, my I have like thousands of analogies for all my concepts. It's a good thing to do. I think it definitely brings it home in that way. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for helping me, Jada. Glad to have you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. And it was nice to talk with you, Julie. It was nice to talk with you too. You had great questions. And I'm 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 glad to hear about your the the in your insurance thing. That I'm glad you could help me with that. I couldn't I didn't know the answer to that. So it's awesome. Oh yeah. No worries. <laughs>